Our scripture reading is from Psalm 119. We'll be looking at verses 57 to 64. Remember as I read this, that this is the word of God. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Father, we rejoice once again in your word, and we ask for the ministry of your spirit, opening our ears and our eyes to your word and convicting us of sin. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there are a number of themes that are repeated over and over again in Psalm 119. The most notable of these has to do with the Word of God and the focus of the Word of God. You'll you'll know, of course, that when people seek to divide up the Psalter into different genres of Psalms, that one of those that receives particular attention are the Torah Psalms. And Psalm 119 is, is, of course, the most notable, the lengthiest of all of those Psalms, which includes Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 as well. And so certainly the Word of God, the commandments of God, the testimony of God is a repeated theme. But yet what we've seen as we've made our way through Psalm 119 is that each of the sections, each of the stanzas, not only set apart in a literary way by the first letter of the first word of each uh, of each of the lines, but but it's also set apart thematically in certain ways. The word of God is always in view, but there are particular aspects of the word of God, particular ways that that the man of God is meant to relate to the word of God that are emphasized in each of these sections. And and so it is with this Heth section, verses 57 to 64 of Psalm 119. A number of ways that commentators have divided it up, perhaps the most helpful homiletical outline, although I don't know that it's precisely accurate, is the one that Charles Spurgeon developed for expositing this section. He says this is This is a section that contains eight marks of a new creature. And the reason why he said this, and I think he was onto something here and really getting at the theme of this section, is because verse 57 and the declaration in verse 57, uh, the confession, the, the testimony of verse 57, really does set the stage for everything that's to follow. It really is the necessary starting point for everything else that the psalmist writes. And so what is it that that the psalmist says here right at the beginning that lays out the theme and establishes, as it were, the playing field of this section of the psalm? Well, here's what he says. The Lord is my portion. This perhaps as clearly as any single line in the psalms and any single line in this psalm declares what it is for this man to actually be united to the Lord and to be a believer in God. It's, it's the clearest kind of statement he could make that, 
God is his inheritance. That Yahweh encompasses everything he could ever know, everything he could ever hope for, everything he needs for life. That the Lord provides for all of it. You'll know, of course, that that word translated as portion could be translated as his inheritance. Or or even in some cases, it refers to a particular portion of land that serves as an inheritance. In other words, what he's saying is, uh, the Lord is, is all that I need. The Lord is all that I expect it. And the Lord, the Lord provides for me in every possible way. Now, of course, that includes whatever he might need to face death itself, whatever he might need for his eternal soul. But, but it's much more than that. He's, he's, he's saying that the Lord himself provides everything. It's uh, reminiscent, I think, of what we hear declared by some of the very earliest Christians when they're suffering and in danger of martyrdom. They'll They'll often be given an opportunity at the very end to to recant of their of their faith in the Lord. And they'll say something like this. And Martin Luther, of course, repeats this and advises all Christians when they're tempted to say this, to say, no, I can't do that. I am a Christian. Christ is is all to me. Thomas Brooks has a section on just this portion of Psalm uh, verse 57, and he puts it this way with respect to application it says if satan should come to thee with an apple as once he did to eve tell him that the lord is your portion or with a grape as once he did to noah tell him that the lord is your portion or with a change of raiment as once he did to gehazi tell him that the lord is your portion or with a wedge of gold as once he did to Achan, tell him that the lord is your portion or the bag of money, as once he did to Judas, tell him that the Lord is your portion. And he goes on to describe all these temptations that those in Scripture faced. And he said, aren't they all answered in the way that Luther told Christians to answer temptation? The Lord is my portion. I'm a Christian. If you're tempted with wealth, you have to ask the question, how does this teaching affect your understanding of that temptation are you tempted with power well can't you say the lord is my portion tempted to cheat because you want to make yourself look better or get out of a difficult situation the lord is to be your portion tempted to cut corners you're tempted to seek some kind of blessing or so-called blessing outside of the commands of god well the lord is your portion is really the theology behind Peter's uh, exposition of salvation in 2 Peter 1. Remember what Peter says, his divine power has granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's another way of saying what the psalmist says here, the Lord is my portion. And it's striking, too, because not only is he saying that the Lord is sufficient for everything, although that is a significant application of this, that the Lord is sufficient to meet all my needs. His divine power gives me everything for life and godliness. But, he, but he's, also, he, he's also giving some ownership to it, that, that the Lord is my portion. I'm, I'm united to him, and, and all that I have, all that I consider to be important, is bound up in as it were, my union with the Lord. Now we know from the New Testament, the New Testament makes it very clear that this is at the heart of what it means 
to be saved by Christ, that we're united to Christ. In fact, as you know, well, John Murray goes so far as to say that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's not simply an application, he says. It's it's the central truth that the Lord is my portion. You know how this plays out in the New Testament as the Bible talks about salvation. What the Bible teaches very clearly is that to be a Christian means that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. Our justification comes in union with Christ. We're sanctified through union with Christ. We shall be raised with Christ. And on and on the Bible goes in describing our salvation in terms of union with Jesus Christ. And this this is wrapped up in the first line. The Lord is my portion. I wonder if this is your confession of faith today as it is for the psalmist. I wonder if you would say, yes, that's that's true of me. What 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 I hold on to, what I declare openly, what governs my family, what governs my decisions, what governs my life, what governs what I think about is just that, that the Lord is my portion. And when I think about my salvation and I think about what it means uh, to have this hope of eternal life and this forgiveness of sins, what it comes down to is this, that the Lord is my portion through faith by grace alone. Do any of those among whom you minister know this to be the essence of salvation? This to be at the core of the Christian life. The Lord is my portion. And you see, that's the reason why Spurgeon saw everything else as flowing out from this. And indeed, in that sense, he's correct. Everything else does flow out from this because the question then becomes, well, if that is true, if, if in fact you can say the Lord is my portion and understand all the implications of that, then what does that look like? As William Cowper puts it when he's, when he's looking through the rest of uh, this section, he says, many will say with David that God is their portion. But here's the point. How do they prove it? And so what does he say in the second section of verse 57? And then into verse 58, I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. See, if, if, if you say that God is my portion, the Lord, the covenant name for God, the Lord is my portion. If you say I am united to Jesus Christ, if that's what you declare, then, then the natural implication of it is to say, Lord, because you are my portion, what you have said, what you have promised is what's going to guide every step of my life. And, and you know, you can come at it the other way as well. Because you can ask yourself, am I obeying the word of God? Am I keeping his word? Do his promises matter to me? Do they weigh heavily on me? And if the answer to that question is no, then you can reason backwards, can't you, to the beginning of verse 57 and say, well, if that's not true of me, then how honest am I being? 
when I declare with the psalmist, the Lord is my portion. Because you see, these two things are inextricably connected. To say that God is your portion is to value his word, is to commit yourself to his word. And you see how the psalmist does this in particular in verse 58. He actually prays a prayer to God, which is dependent upon the grace of God and according to the promises of God. Now, I don't have to belabor this point in this section because it's been made even more clearly earlier in Psalm 119. But but it is worth reminding ourselves again that for the psalmist, prayer and the promises of God have to be connected. The way you pray is you pray with your Bible open, knowing what God's word says and praying according to the will of God, praying according to the promises of God. And he's doing that here. But look at the way in which he he connects these things together. He, he's, he's asking for God's grace, not only to uh, continue to cause him to keep God's word, uh, but also to fulfill the promises that God himself has made to him. Is that's what it means to say the Lord is my portion. You see as well in Psalm in verse 59 that to say the Lord is my portion is to say that his word is not only what I cry out to him for and the basis on which I cry out to him, but his word governs all my actions. This is the way the psalmist puts it. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. This is significant because the word that he is using in verse 59 implies that he is spending actual time considering the various aspects of his life. It's considering the various categories of his life, the things that he puts his time into, the things he puts his energy into, the various spheres of influence that he has. And we might actually ask ourselves just in reflection on the beginning of verse 59, are you someone who, who thinks on your ways? Do you think about all of your life? Do you do an analysis from time to time, an accounting, as it were, an audit of every area of your life, considering it carefully? That's what the psalmist is doing. And then what he's committing himself to is this, that as he audits his life, He's then going to make sure that every aspect is guided and governed by the word of God. It's important for us to spend time in serious consideration, sober consideration of our lives. Oftentimes we can do this with other people because we have blind spots that they can see quite clearly. But however it is that you manage it, whether simply by yourself or with others, and probably both are required. The fact of the matter is we need to be frequent in this work of consideration. We need to turn over our thoughts and our actions in our minds. You know, you've probably had occasions in your life where you're doing something or you, you just spent the last hour scrolling through websites and you say to yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing with my time? Well, well, well that's, that's often said in retrospect. As you, as you reflect on time, you just wasted, and you're not even sure what you did or what you read. What the psalmist is saying is, I, I, I think on that, I, I do that kind of analysis regularly. And then, of course, it's important to 
see what he does with that analysis. He doesn't simply notice it and then just close the book on it, as we often do when we say, where has all the time gone? No, he says, I turn my feet then to your testimonies. If I'm going down a way or a path that is fruitless, if I'm going down a way or a path that could lead me into sin, if I'm going down a way or a path that is simply a waste of time, what do I do instead? I turn my feet to your testimonies. I wonder if you think about your time in that way and your money in that way and your attention in that way. What is it that you give actual attention to? You sit up and take notice or your affection or even your ambition. I turn my feet to your testimonies. You remember how the Apostle Paul put it, such broad terms in 1 Corinthians 10, so that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's what's required, I think, to apply verse 59 to our lives today. And then in verse 60, he goes on to describe what this life with the Lord as one's portion looks like because he says he's going to do this and he's going to do it immediately. If in your consideration of your life, as you look through the various aspects of it, if, if something is wrong, then, then what the combination of verse 59 and verse 60 would tell you is you, you deal with it right away. We're so prone to let ourselves off the hook. We, we, we see a problem in ourselves. Maybe someone else even presents it to us. And we, we take for a few minutes stock of it. And perhaps we even admit that we're wrong or we're deficient in that area. But then what happens next? What happens next is usually nothing. We, we do very little about it. We make some superficial adjustment. We bring it to the Lord one time. But there's no actual change. What does the psalmist say? In fact, when I see these areas, these ways where I am not living in, in accordance with your commandments, where it's really not governed by your word, I, right away I hasten. I don't delay at all to keep your commandments. I drop everything when I see that there's an area of my life that is not governed by God's word. I drop everything and I take care of obeying the commandments of God. You know, of course, how frequently in the Bible there are these, these very important warnings. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now is the acceptable time. I hasten and do not delay. One older writer uh, writing in his own peculiar style of English says this, that what the psalmist is saying is, I did not stand what, what, whating or shilly shallying with myself. And you see what he's saying is he's just saying, I, I took this seriously. I dealt with it right away. There was no internal argument. There was no self-justification. Uh, there was no attempt to minimize it in comparison with someone else's problems or minimize it because of the stress that I'm under or the difficulties I'm facing or the peculiar situation I find myself in. None of that. If you see it, you hasten to keep the commands of God. One other old writer from the 17th century said, the putting off of repentance, the putting off of repentance has ruined thousands of souls. 
Indeed, it's true, isn't it? The case that more often than not, when you or someone you know spends time in great error or sin, it's not that they haven't been warned. It's not that pointed out inconsistencies. It's that they haven't repented. They haven't taken it seriously. They haven't hastened to obey the commands of God. They've ignored it, and in ignoring it, they've hardened their hearts to what the Bible teaches. Do it right now. Don't delay. Now, there is a slight shift in focus beginning in verse 61, and I think this is worth noting uh, because I think the psalmist intends for us to see a, a slight change in the context. If you look at verses 57 through 60, there is a sense in which all of the things that he mentions, the prayer that he's praying, the declaration of faith, that he makes at the beginning, uh, even his his self uh, uh, analysis and, and and understanding of the ways in which he needs correction and repentance, all of that, th- there is a sense in which it could happen individually. It could happen in the home. It could happen as one's sitting and praying before the Lord. All of that could happen by yourself is the point. But when you get into verse 61, you're suddenly moving out into the world. Now, there's a this quote that I think applies to a lot of different situations. It's a quote that the boxer Mike Tyson had before one of his fights. I can't remember which one, but one of his fights with Evander Holyfield. Some one of the reporters asked him, "Aren't you worried because about his plan? Uh, because there was all this talk about how Holyfield had a plan to beat Mike Tyson, and and Mike Tyson very famously uh, said, "Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth." And, and that's true, isn't it? It's, it's, it's exactly the logic of verse 62. It's all well and good. You're going to hasten. You're not going to delay. You've taken stock of yourself. You, you've listened to the word of God. But, but, but what happens when you get punched in the mouth? Well, this is the situation in verse 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. It's easy to say that you serve the Lord and you care about him, that he is your portion. But what about when you're out with your friends, having a good time, and perhaps there's no overt criticism of the Christian faith, but there's just a general, there's just a general lackadaisical attitude to the things of the Lord? What about then? Then do you still obey the commandments of the Lord? What about the times when you're under pressure? For your faith, maybe it hasn't reached the level of violence, although perhaps it has. But but what if you're just under some subtle pressure for your faith? You know you're going to be mocked if you stand up for something. You know that if you're scrupulous in your Christian duties, that others won't understand it, and, and they'll think that you're strange, and they'll, they'll 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 attribute the very worst motivations to you. Well, what then? See what the psalmist says. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. When you take a punch, do you still love God's word? Do you still love the commands of God? Do you still want to declare the Lord is my portion, even though I'm suffering greatly? Well, what about this situation in verse 62? What about not when you're being punched, but when no one is watching? 
He says, at midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Do you care about God's word even when no one else sees you caring about God's word? You care about God's word and about his praise and lifting up your voice to him. Even when there are other things, other profitable things you could be doing. You know, of course, that quote from McShane, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. You see, that's that's really the message of verse 62. That the psalmist says, when I'm under duress, I'm still going to follow your word. When no one's watching, when I, when I probably could be sleeping, I'm awake, I praise you because of it. Will you take even inconvenient times to praise the Lord? Now, it's striking, I think, that he talks about this happening at night. You know, in the previous stanza, the previous section, he talked about being awake in the middle of the night and struggling with that, and yet still remaining faithful to the Lord. And here, again, we have the psalmist awake in the middle of the night. But what's he doing? Well, in the past, what he was doing is, is he was remembering the name of the Lord in the middle of the night, he, even when it was difficult, even when he couldn't sleep. And here, he, he goes a step further. He's not only remembering the name of the Lord, he's praising the Lord at midnight. And why is he praising him? Note the reason, because of your righteous rules. He's praising him because of his word. I wonder when you think about the Lord, do you think about the goodness of his word? You know, you, you would be utterly confused, perplexed, if God hadn't revealed himself to you in his word. You, th you think you have problems relationally now? You, th you think you have difficulties in your family now? You think you have trouble making sense of your circumstances now? Ima imagine if you didn't have the Bible. Imagine if you had no direction, if you had no lamp to your feet and light to your path. Nothing that would make you thoroughly equipped for every good work. Nothing breathed out by God and profitable for you. Can you imagine life without the word of God? Well, the psalmist thinks in those terms, and he praises God because God's given righteous rules. Lastly, we see in verse 63, once again, he's in a social situation. He's not by himself now. But what does he say? I'm a companion of all who fear you. See, the Lord being your portion actually affects how you relate to other people. We might say it reflects in his choice of friends. This probably should be the life verse of every of every student going off to college for the first time. I'm a com companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And why is that? Well, of course, because first of all, we know the Bible's very clear that the, the people we associate with have a great influence on our lives. The, the Proverbs are full of warnings about this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools, well, what happens to him? He suffers harm. We could even turn to Psalm 1 to see this description of the blessed man. And what does the blessed man do? Well, what the blessed man does is he avoids certain people. 
He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Instead, he delights in the word of God. And so certainly this has to do with the the choices we make in terms of those with whom we associate. I'm a companion of all who fear you, he says. But there's another angle to this, I think, as well, because it really is a blessing what he's describing here. He's not only saying the people who fear you are my friends. Those are the ones I seek out, although he is saying that. He's actually saying I have companionship with all of these people. And I'd be willing to bet you've experienced this. You come into a new city or you travel overseas or you enter a church on vacation. And, and, and you realize after a few minutes that there is just a great deal of commonality that you have. These are people with a different upbringing, perhaps even a different language. They, 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 they may even not share all your theological distinctives. And, and, yet, and yet you say, well, I'm a companion with these people because because they fear the Lord. And I fear the Lord. You, you meet a Christian and you, 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 you meet them in a, in a sense in an unexpected time, in an unexpected moment. And, and there's just an immediate kinship. You're talking to them. Oh, oh you, you go to church too. Tell me about that. Oh yeah, here's how the Lord saved me. What a great blessing that is. That in fact, although much of this psalm envisions the psalmist by himself looking at his own life, he's not all by himself. He's actually the companion of Everyone on earth who fears the Lord. There's no club you can belong to, uh, no, no alumni group that works like this. All who fear the Lord are my companions, rich and poor, of all different nationalities and backgrounds and educational attainments. I'm a companion of all who fear. If you love the Bible, if you keep the precepts of the Lord, if you fear the Lord, then you're my friend. And I'm your friend because that's what binds us together. And why can he have such a full-orbed, broad-scoped view of the Christian life, of being united to Christ? The Lord is my portion. Why can he have that? Because of the declaration in verse 64. You see, the reality is this all of these statements are true everywhere at all times because the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. These are truths not simply for one region or one people group. These are not truths just for Sundays, but not for any other day of the week. These aren't just truths for the daytime. They're true at midnight. It's not just one area of your life which you put on your kind of sacred hat and start thinking about the Bible and every other area of your life, you just do whatever you want. No, no, it's every area of your life. It's every day, every minute of your life. It's every place you will ever find yourself that these things are true. See, to have God as your portion, to have God as your inheritance is, is in a sense the, the, the greatest and, and most limitless kind of inheritance you could have. Because, because the earth, O oh Lord, is full of your steadfast love. To be in union with Christ through faith and to be one who therefore does his word and cares about his word and, 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 and has companionship with others who care about his word. What does that mean? It means to, 
to also have his steadfast covenant love. And, and the earth is full of the Lord's steadfast covenant love. The whole world is full of the covenant love of God because the one to whom we are united, the one who is our portion, is, as we know, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has given us a revelation of himself, a final and sufficient revelation of himself, that we might know and worship him and serve him with our whole life. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. For your word, we would indeed be lost if you'd not revealed yourself to us in and through it. Thank you for your steadfast love revealed to us in Christ. And we thank you for the way in which you unite us to Christ through faith. And this is by your grace alone. Lord, cause us to walk worthy of this high calling that we have in Christ. And to do so in submission to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.